This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Lupus is a medical condition we see not infrequently in the primary care practice. Because of the variety of symptoms associated with lupus, at times it can be quite challenging to attribute the patient's symptoms to the disease, and it may take some time to confirm lupus as the diagnosis. It tends to occur most often in a young adult, usually between the ages of 15 and 44, and it's much more common in women than men. With us today to discuss the interesting disease of lupus is Dr. Ronald Budendijk, a rheumatologist at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Welcome, Ron. Thank you so much. Well, I know lupus can present in a variety of manners, um, and I've had patients where we couldn't establish the diagnosis right away, but what's the most common presentation of lupus? Sure. So the most common or classic presentation of lupus really includes a combination of symptoms like joint pain, inflammatory joint pain or swelling, rashes, mostly photosensitive, fever, pleuritic-type chest pain, oral ulcerations, in the background of some abnormal lupus testing. However, as you alluded to, you know, one of the most challenging things about lupus is its varied presentation. And so on, on one extreme, lupus can present as pulmonary hemorrhage, renal failure, or CNS disease, while on the other extreme, patients may develop cytopenia presentation. Is it known why some get this disease? Are there risk factors for the development of lupus that we know about? That's a great question. So our understanding regarding why individuals develop lupus is really continuing to grow, but the exact etiology remains unclear, unfortunately. There does appear to be a genetic component. So for example, studies have noted that there's a high concordance rate in monozygotic twins. Uh, the risk of developing lupus if your sibling has it is 29 times higher than in the general population and 17 times higher if you have a first degree relative that has lupus. Now, we have some studies with uh, the genome-wide association studies have identified over 50 gene loci with polymorphisms that predispose individuals to lupus. The challenging part of it is that even the presence of these only account for about 18% of the susceptibility to lupus, suggesting that there's other contributing causes. And so some studies are looking at the geography and race appears to have some impact. So we know that lupus appears to be more common in urban rather than rural areas. And in the U.S., the prevalence of lupus is higher in individuals in Asians, African Americans, African Caribbeans, and Hispanic Americans compared to Caucasians. Interestingly enough, though, lupus occurs infrequently in Africa. Hmm. So probably some genetic predisposition to the disease <clears throat> combined with some environmental exposure. Uh, I think we have a lot yet to learn. Absolutely. Well, lupus is like nine to ten times more common in women than men. Any thoughts as to why that is? Sure. So we do suspect that hormones uh, play a role. So we suspect this from observational age-related studies. So the ratio of females to males with lupus was three to one in children when the role of sex hormones are likely minimal, 
but ranging from 7 to 1 to 15 to 1 in childbearing years, and then changes again down to about 8 to 1 in postmenopausal women when compared to age-matched males. So also the presence of the X chromosome appears to be important. It carries at least three predisposing gene variants, and there's also evidence for a gene dose effect. So, if, for example, the prevalence in XS, XXY uh, individuals with Kleinfelter syndrome is increased 14-fold in men with lupus when compared to the general population of men, whereas XO, which we know as Turner syndrome, is underrepresented in women with lupus. Hmm. Our audience is primarily primary care providers. So when should we suspect lupus? What symptoms would patients present with that we should say, this could be lupus? Sure. So good clinical history, physical examination, and some blood tests are very important. So we do know that there are some symptoms that we, I kind of alluded to in the beginning of the discussion with joint pain, photosensitive rashes, ulcerations in the mouth, pleuritic chest pain. Those are the types of kind of uh, more generalized symptoms that we kind of think, oh, there may be something autoimmune, there may be something lupus-like uh, going on. You know, when I was in medical school, they taught us about the classic butterfly facial rash. Sure. Is that as common as we suspect it is, or is that relatively uncommon? So there have been some studies, and the how common it is at presentation ranges between about 28 to 38% of the time, but a butterfly rash any time during the disease is higher. It goes up to about 48 to 54% of the time. So it is at least going to be in a quarter to a third of individuals at presentation. Hmm. Now with osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, these two conditions have typical findings on uh, radiograph x-rays. Uh, does lupus have any classic distinct radiographic features? So actually its distinguishing feature is that it's non-erosive uh, compared to other types of inflammatory arthritis such as rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis which do cause erosive disease. So the x-rays may actually be normal. Hmm. Okay. Now I also remember when I was first in practice we basically had an ANA and that's what we used. Things have gotten a little more complicated. What tests are out there now if we suspect lupus? So there are some generalized blood tests that I recommend first. Basic lab testing like a CBC looking for cytopenias, uh, serum creatinine looking for renal dysfunction, um, inflammatory markers such as the SED rate and the CRP, and a urinalysis to look for hematuria, proteinuria, and cellular casts. But you did review, re refer to an ANA. Preferably, we like to get it by immunofluorescence. But there are other tests, such as a double-stranded DNA, an ENA panel, which includes various different markers for autoimmune disease, including lupus. We also like to check for antiphospholipid antibodies, lupus anticoagulant, and something called an anti-beta-2 glycoprotein antibody, as well as complements C3, C4, those types of things, which can get give a practitioner a better kind of feel as to what types of autoimmune diseases may be going on and hopefully point to the one you're suspecting. Yeah, it's much more complicated now, and I think this is a plot by rheumatologists for job security. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, I, I can't keep track of all of the uh, different sure. parameters anymore. Well, as I mentioned, sometimes patients come in, we think it might be lupus, maybe the tests don't confirm it, um, but what 
we end up telling them is sometimes it's going to take a while for this disease to declare itself. So how common is that, that we have to wait before we can establish a diagnosis? Uh, without a doubt. Uh, making the diagnosis of lupus can be a challenge, a secondary really to the heterogeneity of the clinical symptoms and the lack of pathomimonic features or lab tests. The challenge is that symptoms can be intermittent, um, those with more mild disease manifesting as uh, prominently just photosensitivity and arthralgias may go years without a diagnosis because the symptoms are relatively mild. And so the diagnosis is also, though, based upon access to medical care, including primary care, as well as rheumatology. Hmm. I know that there are a variety of uh, courses that lupus can take. Is there a typical clinical course for lupus? Boy, I wish there was. <laughs> so the clinical course is varied, uh, just like the types of symptoms that people may mm -hmm. uh, experience during the course of their lifetime. Some individuals may have a gradually progressive disease, other more intermittent relapsing remitted disease, while some may actually present with severe disease and then have a relatively mild uh, clinical course afterwards. And unfortunately, they can have any mixture of the above. So it's a true challenge. Yeah. Now, we'll occasionally see a patient with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. They have it for years, and then they, it kind of burns out, and then they're pretty much symptom-free. Does, does lupus ever do that? I've seen that in some individuals, yes. Uh, they have horrible disease or, you know, early on in life, uh, very, very, very aggressive. And then as time goes by, it kind of burns out as well. And there's a, 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 perhaps a hypothesis that as we age, our immune system is not as robust, and perhaps that's contributing to a calming down of the disease. Mm -hmm. Other patients I've had have had flares periodically throughout their lifetime. Uh, is Any thoughts as to what causes these flares, emotional stress, medications, anything, uh, any ideas? Sure. General things that can cause uh, or lead to flares include um, sun exposure, especially in lupus patients, uh, stressors, as you alluded to, psychological or physical, surgeries, um, injuries, infections, Smoking is also associated with higher disease activity. And there has been some studies to also show that individuals who are diagnosed with lupus before the age of 25 or those with renal, vasculitic, or neurologic disease also have increased risk of recurrent flares. Hmm. Now, with lupus, there are complications which, which occur. What organs are typically involved with some of these complications from lupus? Uh, virtually all organs of the body can be involved with lupus, and that's one of the challenges. Individuals can have issues with skin, joints, eye, kidney, liver, lungs, heart, um, and, and the GI system. So no organ is really spared in terms of potentially involvement. Hmm. So that could make it also very challenging to, uh, to manage these patients. Absolutely. Now, there are a variety of types of lupus, and I'm wondering, are they all related? Are they separate, distinct entities? Uh, systemic lupus, cutaneous lupus, drug-induced lupus, and I think there's a few more. Sure. So, you know, when we talk about systemic lupus, um, it can also cause cutaneous disease, without a doubt. But when we talk specifically about cutaneous lupus, it can present really when that's the patient's only manifestation of lupus. It's just the skin and no underlying triggers such as medications or those things like that, and it's just treated as cutaneous lupus. However, a large percentage of individuals with cutaneous lupus, 
unfortunately can present to systemic lupus over time. So a clearly dermatologists and rheumatologists need to kind of keep an eye on them. Now, drug-induced lupus is a separate entity, and individuals can actually develop systemic lupus-like features secondary to medications. We know them as procanamide, you know, minocycline, hydralazine, among many others. Mm-hmm. Now, there is an entity called drug-induced cutaneous lupus as well that can be brought on by medications. We use a lot of them, such as hydrochlorothiazide, calcium channel blockers, ACE inhibitors, statins, um, and those types of things. Um, so there are, as you mentioned, a variety of, of, of different reasons for systemic lupus, you know, cutaneous lupus, and kind of drug-induced lupus as well. In those who have a, a drug-induced case, does the disease tend to remit when the medication is stopped? Uh, typically, yes, and that's one of the kind of findings that we see. Uh, lupus, a uh, true systemic lupus, uh, should, would not just remit if you take away a medication. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about treatment. What's out there for, uh, for treating the disease? Sure. So in general, uh, especially for primary care physicians, it's important for counseling of these patients. Avoid the sun, healthy diet, exercise, achieving a goal weight, staying up to date with immunizations, smoking cessation if they smoke. Those are kind of a generalized kind of things. So from a rheumatologic perspective, uh, mild disease may be controlled on hydroxychloroquine, um, but unfortunately, more severe disease, especially kidney or lung or heart or uh, CNS disease, requires more aggressive immunotherapy and can include chemotherapy agents, biologics, cytotoxic agents, and even some transplant medications. Should we as primary care providers be referring our patients with lupus to a rheumatologist? Absolutely. Absolutely. The quicker you can get them in, the better. And uh, studies have shown that the earlier intervention is uh, started, uh, these individuals actually do better. And how about follow-up? Are, are we capable of managing these patients then uh, alone eventually? Uh, if the, the rheumatologist really should be involved as much as possible because there are certain blood tests that are recommended, uh, especially checking kidney function, blood counts, those types of things on an every three-month basis. Mm-hmm. And so uh, those blood tests might be able to be done uh, in the community, primary care, those types of things. But if anything pops up uh, that was suspicious, uh, right back to the rheumatologist you go. <laughs> yeah. In fact, uh, some of the medications you're using have their own problems we need to be monitoring as well. Without a doubt. Many of our medications require regular blood testing, especially the chemotherapy drugs, biologics, and cytotoxic agents. Yeah. So I've been always very grateful to have the assistance of rheumatology in in my patients. It's it's a very difficult uh, disease to manage. How uh, How about pregnancy? Can patients with lupus have a successful pregnancy? Yes, um, patients with lupus can have a successful pregnancy, but it requires careful planning and coordination between medical uh, disciplines. So uh, patients with lupus, as we know, are a higher risk for pregnancy complications. Um, It is recommended that um, conception be delayed until the disease is under control for at least six months, and if at all possible, the disease is kept under control throughout the pregnancy. Now, a couple of little things that are important. One thing is that individuals who have positive SSA or SSB, those are immune markers, um, require really close fetal monitoring because there's an increased risk for complete heart block. And those individuals with a history of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome or clots in the background of lupus um, or a history of previous miscarriages with those positive antibodies are really at risk for additional pregnancy loss. And so the use of anticoagulation can be protective to help out with that pregnancy. Hmm. 
the fact that the disease is so much more common in females than males makes you wonder if there's some hormonal component to this. Does pregnancy itself be a cause of one of the flares? So we have seen that. Um, unlike rheumatoid arthritis, where the standard was thinking, oh, well, if you have rheumatoid arthritis, you get pregnant, your disease kind of melts away during the pregnancy. Unfortunately, that's not so true with lupus, and it can actually kind of be a, a, a cause of flares and that increased disease activity. So very close monitoring is necessary. Mm-hmm. What's new either now or what do you see in the horizon for either the diagnosis or management of lupus? This has always been a, a, a challenge. Um, the, a couple of things new in terms of the diagnosis of lupus. The, uh, in 2019, the American College of Rheumatology and the European League Against Rheumatism uh, basically put out a new classification criteria to help individuals think about um, how lupus should be diagnosed. And so uh, that was something new uh, for, for our, our field. In the treatment realm, uh, belimumab uh, really has been the first biologic that was gained approval, FDA approval in 2011. Since then, there's been multiple medications that come up to the plate, but unfortunately, they've all struck out. The most recent uh, biologic called uh, anifrolumab, it's an interferon 1 inhibitor, showed really some mixed clinical results, and they're scheduled to submit for FDA approval this year, but we'll have to uh, hold on and uh, wait and see if they'll approve it. Well, it appears that you'll continue to see my patients because I'm not using any uh, medications I can't pronounce. <laughs> sure, what we'll happened without a doubt? It's tough stuff. <laughs> well, Ron, let's uh, let's finish up by uh, asking you to give several summary points regarding either the diagnosis or management of lupus. Sure, I think it's important to remember that lupus is really a chronic. It's multi-system autoimmune disorder in which the clinical findings blood tests, and pathology are really relied on to make a diagnosis. This is not simple. Also, it's a diagnostic challenge because all the diverse clinical presentations that can happen and the clinical course can be very, very uh, varied from patient to patient. And so I always kind of, uh, when I'm talking to my fellows or um, other individuals about lupus, I always say, you know, a careful initial evaluation is crucial to approaching patients um, in which lupus is a consideration. So you know you get the right workup, kind of looking to see if you can document uh, to help you diagnose lupus. And then, of course, if clinical suspicion and serology points towards lupus, expediated consultation with a rheumatologist can be very helpful in confirming the diagnosis as well as guiding treatment. All right. Thank you, Ron. We've been discussing the diagnosis and management of lupus with Dr. Ronald Butendijk, a rheumatologist at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Ron, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care, even our old ones, back when we were really good. Mayo Clinic Talks podcast. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week. Thank you.